0: Because you've always taken such charge.
1: You are listening to
0: the Border Chronicle. In the 1980s, as civil wars raged in Central America, spurred on by the U.S. government, thousands of Central American refugees fled persecution and political violence, arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. Instead of being granted political asylum, Central Americans were held in U.S. detention facilities, then deported, many to their deaths. To save lives, Reverend John Fife helped found the Sanctuary Movement. Fife's church, Southside Presbyterian in Tucson, was the first in the United States to give refuge to Salvadoran refugees. Now 83, Fife is pastor emeritus at Southside Presbyterian and still very much involved in humanitarian work in the borderlands. In this interview, Fife talks about how the sanctuary movement formed, the future of immigration policy and humanitarian work, and the long arc of history when it comes to acts of resistance and faith to create social change.
1: You put everything you have into the struggle while you have the responsibility, and then you hand it off. It's a long relay process, yeah.
0: So I wanted to go back to the 80s, Um, You helped found the Sanctuary Movement, and I wanted to know what compelled you to start the movement and why.
1: (laughs) Well, I didn't intend to start a movement (laughs) ever. Uh We started uh, like everybody else in the Borderlands region when refugees from Central America started showing up on the border. And we got alerted here in Tucson Uh, In the summer of 80, when a whole group of uh, Salvadorans crossed into Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument, uh, and 12 of them died uh, the first day out, literally, on that trek. And the survivors were brought to Tucson. And that was my first encounter with, with refugees from fleeing the death squads and the massacres and the and the torture chambers of El Salvador. I had a heads up because the military in El Salvador had gunned down the archbishop and raped and tortured four nuns in El Salvador uh, prior to that, but but that was the first time with folks and hearing their stories about why they fled El Salvador and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and so we began to talk <laughs> about, wow, how, how do we help people to understand what's happening down there? And particularly the, the agenda was the persecution of the church by the military in El Salvador and then Guatemala. Uh, and so a Catholic priest, Father Ricardo Elford and I, started a prayer vigil in front of the federal building uh, just to gather people and, and get them up to date on what was happening down there. Uh, and we were learning along the way, too. I mean, I was doing tutorials over the phone about the history of El Salvador and what was going on down there and well, who were all the players and all that kind of stuff because because we were trying to figure out what we needed to do. And so that turned into a collaboration between the Catholic and mainline Protestant churches in In Tucson uh, which were had already organized for some time in something called the Tucson Ecumenical Council Uh, and legal defense group here in the barrio called Monzo Area Council that had been doing immigration law for I don't know a decade before that Uh, so we brought them together uh, and agreed that we would form a legal aid organization to help Salvadoran refugees who were showing up more and more on the border to apply for political asylum. Uh, and that's how it began. Uh, and Corbett was one of the people who showed up <laughs> at this, this prayer vigil and volunteered to help with the legal aid.
0: And this is Jim, Jim Corbett, yeah. who is a rancher down in Cochise County.
1: Well, no, he was living in Tucson then. And what evolved from that was we learned everybody who was being picked up by Border Patrol around here was sent to El Centro, California Immigration Detention Center. And some of those lawyers went over there uh, to see a couple of clients and reported back to us there's 600 Salvadorans in that detention center, all of them terrified of being deported and killed. Well, not all of them, but almost all of them. And we got to do something about that. <laughs> so we started getting volunteers from churches, bussing them over there for a weekend, uh, renting a motel, and, and having them fill out political asylum applications for all those detainees. And then we started a bond fund to bond them out uh, and bring them back here and find work for them and all that kind of stuff. And after about eight or nine months, I'd say in 80, 81, Jim comes to me and says, John, nobody's getting political asylum if they're from El Salvador. And I said, yeah, we're learning that. But we can delay their deportation. Uh, And he grinned at me and he said, but eventually they're all going to be deported. And I said, yeah, I know. Uh, And he said, I don't think we have any choice under the circumstances except to start smuggling refugees safely across the border so they're not picked up by Border Patrol, because as soon as they're detained, they've started in the deportation process, which is inevitable. (laughs) And I basically said to him, oh, you want me to start smuggling refugees across the border, is that it? And he said, yeah. And I said, "How, how do you figure we have to do that? And he basically pointed to two times in history. One was, the abolition movement when some people of faith helped runaway slaves cross state lines and then move them through an underground railroad to safer and safer places and he said to me those folks got it right they were faithful and i said yeah <laughs> and then he pointed to almost the total failure of the church in europe to protect jewish refugees Uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, and the United States too. And he said, that's one of the most tragic chapters of church history. It's a complete failure of faith. Those folks never were faithful. Uh, And I said, well, yeah, I, I agree. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, I don't think we can let that happen on our border in our time, can we? (laughs) <laughs> and after some sleepless nights, I went back to him and said, yeah, you're right, I'd have to burn my pastor card and, and resign this faith thing. Uh, if I didn't tell you, yes, you're right. So we had gathered, I suppose, a group of 20 people who, uh, who started smuggling families and, and folks who were at high risk. Uh, Across the border and bringing them to Tucson, and when we started, we were just bringing them home, right? What do we know about what to do? So Jim says to me, "Can we bring those folks to your church uh, that we cross?" And I said, "I don't know, but we'll ask the church." And so that conversation got the whole congregation involved because we had to provide food and help and medical care to traumatized people uh, and everything that went with that. Try to help them find jobs, find their family, if they had family members here, whatever. It was a resettlement project for refugees, but very secretive. And after another I would say eight months or so, late in 81, at a political asylum hearing here in Tucson for a Salvadoran. Uh, the government lawyer comes to one of our attorneys at a political asylum hearing and says very quietly, we know what Fife and Corbett are up to. Tell them to stop it or we'll indict him." <laughs>
0: So did that scare you? And and yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> I've been in jail. Yeah. I know what. I don't have any romantic illusions. You have about been in jail during the, the
0: civil rights, rights movement?
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, which wasn't a tough time, but nevertheless, I knew jails. Uh, and the only thing we could figure out under the circumstances, yeah, you know, well, the government's going to indict us, is to beat him to the punch. And go public because everything we've been doing up to that time we thought was a very closely held secret, right? uh, and and so uh, in in you know the middle of conversations about well how do you go public, uh, I'd gotten a letter from a Lutheran pastor in East LA who described how this. Fourteen-year-old Salvadoran kid had been chased down the street by an INS agent, and and he had uh, run into his this guy's church and hidden a closet. And the agent calls for backup and searches the church, finds this kid, and drags him out in handcuffs. Right? And in the last paragraph of that guy's letter. Uh, had said, why can't the church be a sanctuary from this kind of intrusion by civil authorities like it was in Europe in the Middle Ages? And to tell you the truth, I'd, I'd thrown the letter in the wastebasket because <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's, that's a realistic strategy. We're going back to the Middle Ages in Europe. Uh, but I remembered that, that letter and just off the top of my head, in the middle of a conversation, said, well, maybe we could go public by calling the church a sanctuary for Central American refugees because that's kind of what we've been doing for the last eight or nine months. Uh, and everybody thought it would be a good idea if it was my church that tried it first. <laughs> so, so we went through a process with this congregation. Would they be willing to... Uh, to be a public sanctuary uh, under threat of government indictment.
0: And how many people were in the uh, in the congregation at that uh, time? A hundred
1: and some. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And we had a long congregational meeting after about a three-month process. I mean, the congregation met with lawyers and did all did all the stuff faith communities do prayed together about it and searched the Bible for direction under these circumstances and all that kind of stuff. And then we took a vote by secret ballot, and there were only two negative votes out of the whole congregation. So it was pretty compelling. Uh, And the reason is because they had been caring for refugee families for, for a long time. And knew their situation and knew their stories and why they'd fled in the first place. And so they couldn't turn them away. Uh, and so on the anniversary of Archbishop Romero's assassination in, in uh, well, he was assassinated in 1980. So in 82, we had an interfaith service here and, and, uh, and received a mother, father, and two small kids from El Salvador into the sanctuary of the church publicly. Uh, and that's how it started, but we still had no idea about starting a movement. Right? Yeah. Uh, we were just doing, trying to figure out the question of what do we do before we're indicted? Right. And, uh, at the meeting of the congregation, when we made the decision to to do this, uh, one woman in the congregation had stood up and said, why just us? Why don't we ask other people to join us? And I said, I had never thought about that. Actually, I've been too focused on on this. So there were four other congregations that, that declared sanctuary on the same day. Uh, One one in L.A., one in San Francisco, one in Washington, D.C., and one in New York. Uh, And we started getting calls from all over the country. Uh, What's this sanctuary idea and can, can you send us a refugee family if we declare sanctuary? So Jim said... Well, we need to go back and learn from the old Underground Railroad, right? So, we were doing research about how did they do that, <laughs> uh, and replicated as closely as we could. Uh, and so, what became known as the New Underground Railroad, starting here on this border and in the Texas border, uh, started moving families all across the United States and. And folks who were at greatest risk, uh, we moved to Canada because Canada respected international law on refugees. And and all we had to do was get them to a port of entry in Canada and they'd resettle them as refugees. So this movement started, much to our astonishment, (laughs) but that's how it began.
0: And, And what was the dynamic like with other congregations, like in Texas? California, was the dynamic different there it was with the, the politics and the...
1: They, they had been, you know, no matter where you were on the border, they were seeing refugees from El Salvador and then Guatemala as the uh, repression unfolded in, in Guatemala about a year later. Uh, and uh, so everybody was trying to figure out how do we protect these people because nobody's getting political asylum because of the politics of the Reagan administration uh, our allies did not uh, create refugees only communists <laughs> uh, created refugees in the theory of uh, of the Reagan administration
0: and and you all ended up being pretty open about it in informing the authorities at what you were doing. And there's some pretty amazing photographs in the newspapers of that time of, of uh, Jim Corbett guiding people across the border. And it was all photographed. And uh, how did you feel, I guess, about being so open about all that? I guess you really didn't have a choice. At that, we
1: we, at that we point. didn't feel we had a choice. When we When we went public in March of 82, we decided we're going to make everything public. The fact that we were doing border crossings, we would take journalists and reporters with us if they were willing to take the chance. <laughs> uh, and and uh, at some point, early on, I get a call from 60 Minutes, can we come and film a border crossing? <laughs> wow. Uh <laughs> and you know the one thing you cannot do is use refugees right the most vulnerable people on the border for for your own purposes so we had to spend a lot of time talking with refugee families and saying would you be willing to do this and and what their risks would be if they if it was revealed they were crossing into the United States, everything. And we had to make sure that that all those serious ethical questions were covered. And we finally decided, yeah, we could do that. And, and found uh, folks who were willing to be uh, photographed. And television cameras then were not little units. They were pretty hefty. And so... We put all that together and did the crossing with 60 Minutes, and then the movement took off, <laughs> right? Wow. Uh, across
0: across the country.
1: Across the country,
0: yeah. yeah. How many congregations did you have at that point? Do you remember?
1: The earliest number that we counted was something like 27, 28. And that was before the 60 Minutes thing. And then we're counting 200, 200... 15. And and it had moved from just churches and synagogues to cities began to declare themselves cities of sanctuary and instruct their public employees not to cooperate with federal immigration authorities. Uh, and then colleges and universities <laughs> got the idea and would do... Stanford University was the first. Uh, and they moved a former professor from... The, uh, University of San Salvador, onto campus housing with his family and made him an adjunct professor at Stanford. Wow.
0: Yeah. And then you were arrested.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, there's there's one more piece I need to tell you about. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we did the interface service here to declare sanctuary, I thought we were doing civil disobedience in the tradition of Dr. King because I'd been part of the civil rights movement uh, as a as a seminary student Uh, and and so I talked about I quoted King and I quoted uh, all kinds of practitioners of Mahatma Gandhi uh, of civil disobedience and about a month after we did that uh, I get a call in my office and this guy says, I'm a human rights attorney from New York and, and you've got to stop talking about civil disobedience. You're not doing civil disobedience. And I started laughing. I said, are you kidding me? The government says they're going to indict us any day now. And, and he said, listen, dummy, it's not you that's violating United States law. It's the government. They're violating the 1980 Refugee Act. And every time they deport somebody back to conditions in El Salvador or Guatemala, they're violating United States law. So it's the government that's criminal here. And I said, oh, I think I understand. But what do we call what we're doing then? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't know. Make it up.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> yeah. And Helpful. And so of course I went to Jim and told him about the phone conversation. And he came back two days later with a whole paper called Civil Initiative to distinguish it from civil disobedience. And from that point on, this is early, this is a month after we declared sanctuary, our whole relationship with government and law shifted, right? And so that, I think that that was key to the rapid growth of the movement. So, so we had been doing this for three years and the government had not entered any churches that were sanctuary churches or, or, threatened us. Well, they threatened us in the press all the time. Eh. Journalists would go and and say, well, what are you going to do about that church down in Tucson, Arizona? They've got 50 to 100 refugees living in that church every night because we've, we've been there. We And the government would say, well, we're investigating this and, and of course we'll indict them if they're doing that sort of thing. And so we'd had this public dialogue with the government about who was obeying the law and what the law was. Uh, unbeknownst to us, they infiltrated us with undercover agents and decided to do in the movement, right, with indictments. Uh, for a year, they, they infiltrated us with undercover agents, and immigration agents, and undercover FBI agent, and a couple of paid informants. When uh, they
0: were in cameras and uh, they were, they recording? Had recording and, devices uh-huh. hidden in their
1: jackets and their boots. Wow. And they recorded services in churches in Nogales and here and Phoenix. Uh, they even wandered around the parking lot in the church here uh, reading license plate numbers of people who attended worship here <laughs> into, their micro, into their microphones. Uh, and then use those recordings, 90 uh, some recordings, to uh, to indict it. A group of 11 of us uh, in January of '85, and we had planned on arguing the same argument we've been using publicly for three years. So we thought, great, we're going to get this into a court of law, and and we had lawyers volunteering to make that argument. <laughs> And it was a real bunch of desperados. There were two Catholic priests and three nuns and the director of the Tucson Ecumenical Council and Corbett and me. It sounds uh, like a it sounds real, like a real of, group of desperados. Real bunch of criminal types. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you don't want to let your kids loose around us. And, <laughs> right. And uh, the judge ruled two days before the trial opened that we couldn't say anything in our defense about United States refugee law, international refugee law, conditions in El Salvador conditions in Guatemala or our religious faith. Wow <laughs> So
0: that's outrageous.
1: We didn't have a whole lot to talk about in the courtroom uh, under his ruling. So we had to switch strategies in a hurry and so basically we decided well if we can't talk about it in the courtroom we'll talk about it outside to reporters and journalists after court and and the trial lasted seven months we never put on a defense because uh, there wasn't any point to it under that ruling uh, but every night we'd go out and talk to journalists and reporters and they'd say well you were accused of doing a border crossing just East of Douglas on such and such a date. Did you do that? And we'd say, yeah, we did that. <laughs> uh, what's more, we're, we're doing it again tomorrow. Would you like to go along? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we drove our attorneys nuts because uh, the first thing they tell a defendant in a criminal trial is, don't you say anything. We'll, we'll do the talking here. Uh, and we were, doing, we were just flipping the script. Uh, But what happened was the trial lasted seven months, Uh, and during that time, the number of churches and synagogues more than doubled uh, in the movement. And the movement grew to Europe, uh, and almost all the European Union countries uh, began sanctuary uh, in churches. And... Uh, legislation gets introduced in Congress, it has great traction to provide temporary protected status for, for Salvadorans and Guatemalans. Uh, and we were found guilty, of course, because <laughs> uh, we never put on a defense. Uh, but the judge was under a lot of pressure. From both sides the government was saying these people are criminals and we need to stop this movement uh, so send them to jail (laughs) and and at the same time he was getting letters from all over the world from human rights organizations and faith based organizations saying uh, uh, you can't criminalize the act of protecting refugees Uh, and and so he tried to figure out what to do The First person sentenced is a Catholic nun, (laughs) and she stands up to be sentenced, and he says, Sister, I'm going to be lenient here. I'm just going to sentence you to five years probation on the condition that you not have anything more to do with this sanctuary movement. (laughs) And she looked right back at him and said, Judge, we've been here a long time, and you haven't listened, so listen now. She said, if you let me walk out of this courtroom, I'm going right back and do sanctuary for Central American refugees. I have to. It's my faith, Judge. So what do you want to do? And he got red in the face. He came back. About 15 minutes later, he said, all right, all right, five years probation. Take it up with your probation officer. So he gave us all the same sentence, and we went right back and did sanctuary, of course. Uh, But the legal issue was still not resolved between us and the government. Uh, And so we, our attorneys filed suit uh, against the Attorney General of the United States uh, shortly after our criminal trial. And it got delayed for three years uh, in the federal court. But finally, the judge who was hearing our case against the, the government uh, gave us the right to put the Attorney General and the head of the Immigration Service and the Undersecretary of State for Human Rights under oath and take their depositions in preparation for the trial. And within 24 hours, we get a call from the Justice Department in Washington saying, would you be interested in negotiating a settlement to uh-huh. this case? I bet, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and the lawyers argued in... in uh, negotiated in Washington for a couple of months, finally reached an agreement that that essentially uh, accomplished what we'd set out to do in the first place. Uh, They agreed to give everyone who was here with that document's uh, temporary protected status. They ended all deportations to El Salvador and Guatemala, and they they uh, agreed to a whole series of reforms of the political asylum process. And then the peace accords were signed in Central America in 92. And so we had a dance called an end to the sanctuary movement.
0: Right, you you called it the end of the sanctuary movement, but then a new sanctuary movement started, yep. right? And and yep. uh, what what was your role in, in that movement?
1: Uh, it was pretty much the same here in Tucson as it was across the country. Uh, What had happened uh, was that the Border Patrol had started a new border enforcement strategy called Prevention Through Deterrence Mm -hmm. uh, in 1994 in the Clinton administration to look tough on immigration and that strategy was leading to the deaths of hundreds and then thousands and now tens of thousands of migrants in the desert out here. And the whole ICE and homeland security apparatus to, to uh, target undocumented families in communities across the United States had unfolded after 9-11. Uh, and so, the movement revived about 2007, six seven. Uh, more and more cities declared sanctuary uh, and counties uh, because it was <laughs> it was bad law enforcement, bad public safety policy. Uh, it was it was destroying relationships between the police and communities across the country. So what happens? hey, we're gonna declare sanctuary and sanctuary cities, and it, and it grew, uh, particularly through the Obama administration, uh, because Obama, for the first term, decided he was gonna set record numbers of deportations to get the Republicans to sh- show them how tough he was on the border and in immigration. And that whole period of time uh, meant that families in every community across the United States were at risk.
0: Yeah, and, and you talked about prevention through deterrence and, yeah. and you helped co, co-found co uh, a group called No More Deaths to save people from dying in the desert. And I'm hoping right. you can talk a little bit about about that. Yeah,
1: well, the deaths in the desert, you know, escalated as the, as the strategy unfolded. They said, well, we, we're first of all gonna, gonna build, tear down those eight-foot cyclone fences that had marked the border in every border community. Uh, And, and we're gonna build 18-foot, 20-foot steel walls. And we're gonna quadruple the number of Border Patrol agents, and we're gonna make, Urban areas, which were always the place people crossed, migrating both ways, uh, we're gonna make it impossible to to cross uh, there. And, and we know what's gonna happen. People are gonna start to go around the edges of those urban areas. And then we'll push the walls out and we'll quadruple the number of Border Patrol agents again. This is all after 9-11. And the fear was, there are terrorists who are crossing the border. We never found one in, right. what, 30 years? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but that, was the, that was the political fear. Uh, and, and they said, well, people still go, try to go, go around the edges, uh, but now they'll have to cross through the deadliest areas of the desert. And they even said, we're going to do this strategy in Texas and California first, because nobody will try to cross through the Sonoran Desert. It's a geographic barrier to migration. Well, what happened was we we became the epicenter of migration, uh, north and south. And so uh, we called together people who'd been involved in the sanctuary movement here in Tucson uh, in 2000. Uh, as... The deaths began to mount here uh, and, and said, what do we do to save lives out there? And, and we're a really bright group. It took a four-hour meeting to determine we ought to put water stations out in the desert. <laughs> uh, and so we formed Humane Borders First that puts water stations on federal land. 70% of the border here in Arizona is federal land. So you have to get permits to, to do that work on, on federal land. Uh, so once Humane Borders was going good, then we formed Samaritans that put four-wheel drives out every day with volunteers from Tucson uh, and with food and water and emergency medical gear. And then once that was going good, We sat down again and said, okay, what more do we have to do? And we formed No More Desks to put volunteers out in camps 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, to save as many lives as we can, do water drops on migrant trails, and uh, to hold the government accountable for the abuses of Border Patrol agents in the desert uh, and in the detention and deportation process. So we documented the crimes of and the human rights violations of the Border Patrol at the same time, and then allied with the ACLU to file suit against the Border Patrol. And that legal argument has been going on with the government for 18 years now. Uh, The Tucson Sector Border Patrol is now under federal court supervision, because of their abuses of migrants in detention and deportation for so many years. Uh, Federal judge determined that they were systematically violating human rights uh, here in Tucson. And uh, then the government started uh, bringing misdemeanor and felony charges against our volunteers out in the desert. And they've brought, I think, 50 some charges against uh, Samaritans and no-more-deaths volunteers
0: this is over the course of the the 20 years now that the the groups have been in existence yeah
1: and and we've won them all Mm -hmm. Uh, including some fairly noted defendants like Scott Warren recently and and others But we've pretty well won that argument now. We just need to institutionalize it uh, a little more effectively under the Biden administration. We'll see.
0: So how would you do that? Yeah, how would you institutionalize it?
1: Well, our ask is pretty simple. Uh, ICE and the Border Patrol have a policy that says they need to stay away from certain institutions like schools, and hospitals, and churches, and places of worship, mortuaries, and, and uh, other places they call uh, sensitive locations. And they cannot go into those uh, places under their policy without uh, and okay from the highest levels of their command structure in Washington. So our ask is pretty simple. They need to include humanitarian aid sites in the desert that are there to provide life-saving aid to folks who are who are dying out there in the desert. Uh, water, food, and medical care, basically. So that's that's what we're working on now.
0: Are you are you working with elected officials? No, or we're not. Lobbying?
1: We're not working for legislation. We're trying to get. Uh, the the Department of Homeland Security to just make that a policy. Mm-hmm. And we think we we have a good shot at it.
0: Yeah. What do you think about the demonization of the sanctuary movement by you know certain Republicans and the right right wing um, in recent years? I mean, you've probably experienced that throughout. I would imagine yeah, sure. that 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 kind of attitude, but. How do you respond to something like that, or what do you think about it?
1: Immigration has been a politically contentious issue throughout the whole history of the United States. After the Civil War, the Ku Klux Klan had two agendas. One was Jim Crow and segregation. The other was to end immigration. Uh... And after the Civil War, we banned all Chinese <laughs> and all Asian immigrants uh, because the fear was that all of China was going to migrate across the Pacific to Mexico and, and enter the United States. Uh, and then it was Southern Europeans uh, from Italy, and then it was Irish. and. And if you go through the whole history of immigration, immigrants have been the most vulnerable uh, political targets for the whole history of the United States. And that is true today. Uh, the, the politicians have uh, politicized immigration policy to the point that that we have an immigration policy and legislation that does not reflect in any way, shape, or form uh, the reality of migration, the reality of borders, the reality of refugee flows globally. Uh, and, And it is an easy mark for politicians, and it's an easy mark for religious persons to uh, demonize immigrants who are now arriving. Uh, My own ancestors, uh, who were Scots-Irish immigrants in Western Pennsylvania, uh, were against those Catholics who were immigrating from Ireland and, and Italy because they had heard that it was a plot by the Pope to take over Protestant United States culture. Uh, And that's been, that phenomenon is, is currently a matter of great division in the United States. Uh, And it hasn't changed since the end of the Civil War and in our history. And, and it is bedeviling us as a people and as a country and as a part of a global uh, phenomenon. That's true in Europe, it's true in Southeast Asia, it's true in Australia, it's true in Canada. Uh, that, that this fear and anxiety uh, makes uh, a rational immigration policy and, and practice. Uh, Almost impossible. I mean, every president, every president from Bill Clinton through George W. Bush, through Barack Obama, tried to change uh, and legislate a sound immigration policy, and they failed. (laughs) They were unable to get it through uh, the politics of Congress. And then, of course, Trump promised to go back to uh, uh, ancient practices and ban all <laughs> the immigrants we feared and declared everybody who was here without documents uh, was a criminal and a threat to national security and based policy on that fallacy. Uh, and now Joe Biden is trying it and, and having no more success. So we're stuck. So that's why you're seeing uh, initiatives in communities across the, the border and across uh, the United States, literally, and globally to take the initiative and resist the enforcement practices of governments against uh, the latest uh, immigration flow uh, globally.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you where you see the future headed for immigration and border policy with so many people on the move now and with climate change. Yeah. I mean, it's going to probably be the defining issue of this century. Uh, where do you think we're headed with all that?
1: Well, it's going to be a while. <laughs> yeah. It's not get. there's no instant pudding in, in this realm. Uh I I believe we're gonna have to do it with climate change first, It's gonna be the first time that we're gonna realize nation states can't solve this problem by themselves. Uh, And they're gonna have to create global tables uh, and and enforcement of global standards to literally save the life of the planet. And, and once we do that, then we're going to get to the next most serious problems and, and global migration and refugee policy is going to be a part of that conversation. So, so my judgment is uh, that it's going to be sometime in the latter part of the 21st century before we get uh, that issue of global migration and refugee policy. Uh, into a global arena where that problem can be dealt with and shared by the whole global community.
0: Uh, You know, working on such an intractable issue for so many decades um, with immigration and civil rights, uh, do you have any advice for activists and people who are involved in the movement how to sort of stay the course and not get demoralized?
1: At some point, after the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement were passed, I was at a a meeting with some of those old civil rights leaders, and I said in my enthusiasm, we changed the whole world in five years, look at this, and they said, sit down, son and started to tell me about 200 years of history of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation. And, and that what, what had been accomplished in that five years in the 60s uh, was the, the result of that long 200-year struggle. Uh, and, and they taught me that lesson very well. <laughs> uh and humiliated me along the way by the way. i
0: going to so say you never forgot that and lesson, did you? It. That's right.
1: That's right. Uh so so I learned it early on and and never thought that that we were going to in 5 years change anything. <laughs> we were I was in it for the whatever the term of my life is. Uh, and I was benefiting from from all of the struggle and all of the sacrifice for people long before me who were also working on immigration and refugee issues and I know they're going to have to work on it a long time after i'm gone uh, so you do you put everything you have into. The struggle while you have the responsibility and then you hand it off is basically how I understand. It's a long relay process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for talking to the Border Chronicle. I really, really appreciate you taking the time.
1: I'm grateful you're doing the Border Chronicle. Keep up the good work.
0: We will. Thanks. (laughs) The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It'll help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.